thank you to all of you at home for joining us this hour. They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And that appears to be exactly where we are right now, in the middle of insanity. Just about an hour ago, the House of Representatives adjourned for the third day without selecting a Speaker of the House. Today, the lower chamber has already held five votes for Speaker, and Congressman Kevin McCarthy failed to cinch the nomination on all five of those votes, bringing the total number of times he has failed to win the Speaker's gavel up to 11. That is the most failed elections for Speaker in any Congress in over 100 years, surpassing the nine attempts it took to elect a Speaker all the way back in the year 1923. Throughout those failed votes, Kevin McCarthy has not managed to pick up one single new supporter. Now, his Republican antagonists have also failed to pick up any new support, though they have introduced two new names into the mix for Speaker, Oklahoma Congressman Kevin Hearn and Donald Trump, the twice-impeached former president of the United States. Today, Congressman Matt Gates officially nominated Donald John Trump to be the Speaker of the House, which he can technically do because the Speaker of the House does not actually have to be a member of Congress. After being nominated, Trump, who has endorsed Kevin McCarthy, managed to get only one vote from Matt Gates himself. But that did not stop Trump from posting this photoshopped image of himself in the speaker's seat on his Truth Social account, because of course he did. This chaotic week has already eaten up nearly 3% of the days that members of the House were supposed to be in session this year. But amid all the chaos and the confusion, there might be the first signs of an actual deal. Sort of. Maybe. NBC News reports that negotiations between the pro-Kevin and anti-Kevin factions of the GOP are now approaching a deal to elect a speaker. According to Punchbowl News, that deal includes, surprise, key concessions from Kevin McCarthy, including allowing any one member to call a vote to oust the speaker, giving the House Freedom Caucus key posts on the powerful Rules Committee, which would make them gatekeepers for all legislation headed to the House floor, and it would establish a new select subcommittee to investigate the weaponization of the federal government with a a budget the same size as that of the January 6th committee. In exchange for all of that, Kevin McCarthy has secured... Well, it's unclear what's been secured, if anything's been secured. Multiple members even tell NBC News that the deal likely does not assure Kevin McCarthy the speakership. Instead, it appears the pro-Kevin faction has set its sights on a much smaller goal. Peel off just a few of the anti-Kevin holdouts to show signs of momentum toward eventually, someday, having enough votes to make Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House. In other words, my friends, we are not out of the woods yet. The United States of America still does not have a seated House of Representatives. How much longer will this go on? Joining us now is Democratic Congressman from Michigan, Dan Kildee, who serves on Hakeem Jeffries' leadership team. Congressman, thank you for being with us this evening in this historic week of... I don't know what the history books will write about the week, but let's get right to it. We know that the House uh, Democrats were whipping votes on the motion to adjourn. It seems like Democrats did not want an adjournment to happen. Can you explain a little bit how you're thinking 
about this process right now and what you would like to see happen beyond the election of a speaker? Is is the goal to keep Republicans voting on this and effectively force them to make a choice? Or what's the logic? Well, we were sent here to do the work of the American people and this Republican majority. And by the way, this is only an example of what we're likely to see over the next couple of years. This is not when it is resolved, not the end of the problem. It's just the first thing that they have to do and they can't seem to do that. But our, our goal is to get to work. And we don't think uh, going somewhere other than the floor of the House is the place to get that work done. And we also I mean, this is my own view. The only way we get to a place where Republicans come to grips with reality and finally elect a speaker, they're in the majority. That's their prerogative. But the only way we do that is when they finally prove to themselves the reality that either they can or can't get votes for Kevin McCarthy. And if they can't, move on to somebody else. This should not all revolve. The entirety of the federal government coming to a screeching halt should not all revolve around the likes or dislikes of one individual, Kevin McCarthy. That's that's not the way our government is designed to function. But it is a you know, it's an example of what happens when we put people like this in charge of the U.S. Congress. They're the majority and they can't even manage a peaceful transition to themselves. (laughs) Yeah. You think that the only place this gets worked out is on the House floor. So that to me says you have little to no confidence in the negotiations that are happening behind closed doors with the anti-Kevin and pro-Kevin caucuses as they were. Well, and those those negotiations can take uh, take place while we are continuing to, to try to get this done. You know, um, simply leaving and sending everybody home, which is what uh, Leader McCarthy's, you know, suggestion has been to just send us all home and let them work it out. That's not what we were sent here to do. So, you know, my view is I'm elected to serve in Congress to represent the people of my district. The 212 of us on the Democratic side are committed to be on that floor until we can get to the work that we were sent here to do. That doesn't happen until the Republicans solve their problems. And, you know, if this is any indication of their ability to deal with the heavy problems that face the American people, bringing down their costs, you know, dealing with the cost of health care, dealing with energy, dealing with the you know, national security threats that we face. If they can't do something as simple as choose among themselves somebody to sit and hold a gavel, how on earth do we expect them to take on far more complicated issues? I don't I don't see it. As it pertains to the selection of the speaker, you seem to suggest that Going through the motions of these failed votes over and over again is going to teach the Republicans that perhaps what they're doing is not working. Maybe find another candidate. What is the mood like in the course of these votes? I mean, we see the C-SPAN camera footage, but you're there. Is there a palpable amount of pain or anguish or exhaustion that you're seeing from the Republican caucus as they go through the motions again and again and again? There's a lot of exhaustion with it. And there's, there's ang- we're, we're anxious to get to work. Look, we know, at least for these next two years, we're going to be in a position of being in the minority, of being you know, in a position to try to help craft policy. The, the mood is one of being anxious to get past this and get to work. And you know, this is especially true for those new members who are coming in. 
Their families are here. You're here for that big moment to see them sworn in to Congress. And what they're seeing on full display is a completely dysfunctional Republican Party, one that can't even sit down across the table with one another and work things out. And just to be clear, you know, we know how this is. We are a diverse party ourselves. We've been through this with really slim, in fact, the exact same majority. When Speaker Pelosi was elected, the two times that she was elected uh, over the last uh, two cycles, we had to go through the process, but we did it in an adult fashion prior to coming for the January 3rd swearing in ceremony. We sat down as adults looked at one another, worked out our differences, and came up with a way to elect a Speaker of the House of Representatives. And that's the way it's been done for 100 years mm. until this crew came in and has become the majority. And they can't seem to even figure out a way to get through this very opening, uh, this sort of almost ceremonial moment that ought to be the culmination of their narrow but still clear victory they won they don't even know how to deal with that they don't know how to deal with winning this slim majority this is it's a really disturbing image that's being portrayed and of course they're trying to say this is this is how democracy works um no this is not how democracy works (laughs) is there any chance democrats offer a lifeline here if kevin mccarthy doesn't have the votes in the next round of voting is there any chance we're going to see some attempt at a unity candidate and who would that be well that's a good question and you know the way i've explained it is that they know where to find hakeem jeffries if there's an interest (laughs) on the republican side of coming over and trying to talk with us about how we move forward our interest is getting to the legislative process. And we're willing to do what we need to do to get there. But it's not up to Democrats to do the thinking for Republicans. But I will say this. We're a party that believes that government can work together. We can work in a bipartisan fashion. And if that has to start right away with the selection of a speaker, they know where to find uh, Leader Jeffries. Uh, he's a reasonable person. And we're open. We're open to that conversation. I mean, the Senate's starting to look real good. I'll just end by saying we know that um, uh, Senator Stabenow from your state is retiring. Is there any chance you're going to run for her seat? No, I'm not. I'm uh, I'm committed to my work in the House of Representatives. First of all, we've got a lot of great potential candidates in Michigan, and I'm enthusiastic about the possibilities of nominating one of them. They're going to have awfully big shoes to fill. Uh, Senator Stabenow has been a friend of mine for as long as I can remember and a great, great ally. Uh, she and I worked very closely together, for example, to get relief for the people of my hometown of Flint. Uh, her legacy is one of incredible public service. Uh, and she'll be followed by another great Democrat, I'm sure. They actually seat people in the upper chamber, just saying. Michigan Congressman Dan yeah. Kildee. Yeah, they've got that going for them. <laughs> they do. Thank you for your time, sir. Good luck out there. Thanks, Alex. Joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator from Missouri and an MSNBC analyst. Claire, thank you for being here tonight. Is it tonight or is it yesterday or is it tomorrow? It feels like time is very elastic. (laughs) Yeah, it's all blending together. Um, Kevin McCarthy is still not speaker. Kevin McCarthy is still not speaker, Claire. Yeah. do, Do you think, Alex, that they don't realize that people are watching this? I mean, it's almost like it's become so insular that they don't understand that the American people are watching and thinking, what? This is how they're going to run government? I I just I I am flabbergasted that 
Kevin McCarthy is this clueless, just flabbergasted. Well, do you, don't you think at this point, it's not just Kevin McCarthy. It's also you have to wonder what's happening at the upper echelons of Republican leadership. Right. I mean, there was reporting that Steve Scalise was ready to take the reins if and when McCarthy's bid failed. We hear that there's some amount of frustration, but the fact that Kevin McCarthy is still trying to make the case for his nomination seems to me to be a failure of leadership, don't you think? Well, I do. And, you know, here's the thing. You've got about 40 members of the Freedom Caucus, and they're split almost in half uh, as to who is willing to go along with McCarthy and get goodies and who is unwilling. So he's trying to peel those off. On the other hand, there's like 170 Republicans that say we will never be for anybody but Kevin. But all of that is irrelevant because there are at least five and probably six or seven that have said we will never, ever, ever be for Kevin McCarthy. We only want to defeat him. And what I don't understand is all these machinations why isn't he one-on-one with those five to seven members? Because if he doesn't get them, this is just going to continue to... He's now given them everything. You know what I think, Alex? I think at this point, he's probably going to show up at Republican caucuses with a tray serving drinks <laughs> because he is he's given away everything at this point, including his dignity. So I, I don't... I, you know, how can he be a leader that is ever feared or respected after this circus? I just don't see how it happens. I mean, he's literally given away everything but the gavel. And even that may be up for discussion. I, I, the, the reality, though, Claire, is that Kevin McCarthy has now drafted the outlines of a deal that whoever takes a speaker's job is going to have to abide by, right? I mean, that seems to be the most destructive part of all of this. Even if Kevin McCarthy isn't the guy, whoever they nominate, whoever ultimately wins here is going to have to abide by this ridiculously lopsided set of negotiations that Kevin McCarthy has undertaken as probably the worst negotiator in, you know, House history, maybe. I guess I wonder when you think about the House as a former senator— how bad can it get, given the contours of the deal that we've already seen? He's setting up a system. And listen, I understand that both in the House and the Senate, it's gotten really very leadership centric. Leaders are writing bills and leaders are doing way more of the work than they used to do. Individual members used to have a lot more committee work and a lot more say about what was going on. And, and that's a valid concern. But what they're about to do is really make it so nobody could herd cats in the House. And that's what the job is. I mean, Nancy Pelosi made it look easy. It's very, very difficult. And this party, this Republican Party, has been hijacked by the extremes. They have been hijacked by the most extreme elements in America. And I don't know how they are ever going to be released by th their kidnappers. <laughs> I think the extreme element of the Republican Party has got their, their hooks into them. And I, I this is just a display of how strong those hooks are. I don't know how they're going to escape. 
I kind of wonder what you think the national implications are. You know, Ron DeSantis has not been talking about this. He is safely ensconced in his anti-woke castle in Florida. Even Trump has, you know, he's been posting pictures of himself on Truth Social, but what else is new there? Uh, they, they seem to understand how absolutely radioactive this is for the party. Do you think the stench of this entire thing sticks with the GOP in the months to come? Well, I actually think that DeSantis is more of a winner here than Trump. I mean, you know, it, McCarthy's the big loser in this to, to this point, um, but Trump's right behind him. I mean, he got one vote. I mean, I, that had to make him kind of, you know, sick because he thinks he's the star of the show and he got one vote today and he couldn't convince any of these 20 people to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, but Don, Ron DeSantis has an advantage saying, I'm not of Washington. This is good for governors that want to run for president because they can distance themselves from what's going on in Washington. But on the other hand, I will tell you this. We ran in November against extremism and extremism by and large lost in November. Democracy won in November. Women's reproductive freedom won in November. People who care about gun safety, by and large, won. Yes, they controlled the, the House, but we picked up a seat in the Senate. And so I think this, this idea that extremism is still leading the parade of the GOP is not good news for them in 2024, especially if they nominate somebody that's as feckless as Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> We'll, we'll see, Claire McCaskill. We will see how this saga ends. It is always good to talk with you, my friend, former U.S. Senator from Missouri. Thanks for your time, as always. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. We have much more ahead this hour. One of the more unlikely things we've seen amid all of this mess is Republicans nominating someone from their caucus to be the first black speaker of the House. But how sincere is that effort, really? Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar will join me to discuss that and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert are faces you know of this Never Kevin movement, thanks to their history of antics. But what about the 18 other Republicans voting against Kevin McCarthy? Just how much do we actually know about them? That's next. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. The problem with Washington politicians is they have no skin in the game. It's time for we the people to take our country back. I'm Eli Crane and I approve this message. 
That was now freshman Arizona Congressman elect Eli Crane, one of the 20 far right Republican members of Congress who've spent three days this week preventing Republican leader Kevin McCarthy from becoming Speaker of the House and in turn from seating the 118th Congress. You may be familiar with Congressman-elect Crane because of his appearance on the reality TV show Shark Tank. Mr. Crane founded a business that sells things like hollowed-out 50-caliber bullets that have been made into bottle openers and let's-go-Brandon grenade-shaped bottle openers and giant bullet bottle openers with former President Trump on them. So you might know Mr. Crane from that, but you also might not know Mr. Crane from all that because he is a relatively new face. And while already well-known members of this group of 20 representatives like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert have become the faces of this little insurgency, what about the rest of the folks in this posse? Take, for instance, freshman Florida Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna. I'm Anna Paulina Luna. Unlike the crooks in Congress, I'm not going to lie to your face and tell you what you want to hear. Now, despite Luna's claims of not saying things that are convenient, things that uh, people want to hear, some of Mrs. Luna's biography appears, well, fairly convenient. As the Tampa Bay Times puts it, much about Luna is new, including her last name and her residence in St. Petersburg. It coincides with her decision to challenge Representative Charlie Crist. Now, today, Anna Paulina Luna is a right-wing media superstar. Right-wing media is trying to brand her as the conservative AOC. Conservatives are literally trying to make calling Luna APL a thing. But as the Tampa Bay Times points out, a lot of APL's persona is new. Not too long ago, her name was Anna Paulina Meyerhofer, and she was a self-described avid supporter of Barack Obama. In a 2017 interview about her then-modeling career, Luna described her job by saying, I'm able to take on different personalities depending on what image I'm going for. I think getting into character of what you are selling is super important. Okay. While there isn't an ideology that unifies this band of 20 Republicans, there really does seem to be a common thread of branding here, of self-promotion. We have yet to see an issue or a policy animate this group of people, but we have seen that all of them are very into being the rebels here and very much enjoy being in the spotlight and would like to ensure that spotlight stays on them and their insurgency. It's good for their brand. It gets them on more far-right TV shows. It raises them more money. It probably moves more grenade-shaped Let's Go Brandon bottle openers. But what does that mean for how this ends? How do you negotiate with a group whose only priority seems to be themselves? Joining us now is Brendan Buck, who served as an advisor to two former Republican speakers, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, a man who I'm delighted to say is making his debut appearance on this television show. And boy, what a time, Brendan. It's good to see you, my friend. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Alex. All right. So... Honestly, Brendan, as you do the research into this group of 20 that is effectively holding the House of Representatives hostage, it makes the Tea Party insurgents of the John Boehner era look like a think tank with well-developed policy foundations. What is your opinion of this group of people in terms of what they actually want and how Republican leadership can possibly negotiate with them? 
Yeah, that, that was a great setup. Look, enter, this politics for these people has become entertainment. It has become sport. Uh, as you said, it is all about getting on TV and being famous. And that's the problem for Kevin McCarthy. He is he has now found himself uh, in a, a game of, of a staring contest, a contest of wills with people who love being on stage right now. They love the fact that we are talking about them. They, they exist for this. I mean, the House Freedom Caucus, uh, you know, where the, where the center of all of this is operating, uh, they like to talk about how they're organized around conservative principles, or maybe they're organized around the, how the rules of the House operate. But they're really, they exist to make themselves relevant. They were a group of misfits who found ways to make leadership pay attention to them by being difficult. And this is just a natural outgrowth of it. I mean, it started in 2010 with the Tea Party, but those people were much more focused on policy issues, on fiscal matters, wanting to actually at least solve some problems. Uh, you don't see that much anymore. Matt Gates is a complete, he's, he's a performative clown. He, he is an online troll. And, 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 and these are the, when, you, when you have people like this who don't want to get a deal with you, they have no interest in finding a deal. It makes it very difficult for Kevin McCarthy. So he's going to have to see if he can pick off maybe some of these people who are, are acting in good faith, but so many of them just aren't acting in good faith. They just want us to be talking about them. I mean, I think also if you look at it more holistically, it's a new strain of Republican politics that seems very much in the image of Trump, not just the sort of the showmanship, but the branding, the, the self-for-sale aspect of all of this. I mean, it, you know, Trump sold ties and steaks and vodka. Eli Crane is selling bullet-shaped Let's Go Brandon bottle openers. Um, Anna Paulina Luna is a, a person with many personalities, and she's eager to show the country those various personalities. It's, it seems to be about her, not necessarily what she believes in. I mean, and the list goes on. I mean, Carrie Lake was a former Obama supporter and then, you know, was someone who loved the camera, was a television person. We know what egomaniacs television anchors are. And, and politics seems to be a vehicle for fame. That feels new in all of this. Does it, does it feel, I mean, I, I, I know that the anti-institutional strain of Republicanism was very much in effect when you were working with Boehner and Ryan. But the pure, like, heat-seeking missileness of this all, the desire to just be famous for fame's sake, seems like a relatively new development within the radical fringe of the Republican Party. Yeah, and Matt Gates has actually said that uh, he thought that he could sort of defeat Paul Ryan in terms of uh, sway within the party because he went on Fox News more. And, that, and that's how he judged his role. I mean, he doesn't see his role as solving problems, uh, passing legislation. He sees his job as communicating. And it, it, the, the fighting is the ends. It's not a means to an end. The fighting and the being performative is the ends. Uh, and, and it's just a real breakdown in what you expect. You know, we have this romantic idea of someone who comes to Washington and what they're trying to achieve. And a lot of them, uh, whether you're, you know, you're super conservative, at least some of them believe that they are, are working towards something. But some mm. of them, these fo folks aren't even really pretending that they're, they're working towards anything. Now, I do want to say th this is, you know, we, we talk about these ones who, who stand out. There are still a lot of really well-meaning people in the House Republican Conference, and they're part of that 200 who are supporting Kevin McCarthy. Um, the problem is there's so much bad faith uh, that, that is uh, percolating right now that it makes it really hard to figure out who is acting in good faith, who's really willing to come to a deal. Are there more uh, than, uh, than four or five of these people? So it's, it's tough to, to nail them down. And that's what they've been trying to do this week is figure out who's being honest, who can I really deal with, or who just really wants us to be talking about them on the news. Brendan, 
Is there any, I mean, does McCarthy risk losing some of his own people, the 200 that you talk about? I mean, some of them are pretty far right, but the ones that are more moderate, watching him give away the store, everything but the gavel, does he risk alienating them at this point? Or do you think they want this thing to be over so badly that they'll just go with whatever he agrees to? I think this is making a lot of people really uncomfortable, to be honest with you. Uh, the things that he is he is doing, and I won't bore your audience with the sort of operations of the House, but it makes it really difficult to move an agenda. It makes it really difficult to imagine getting outcomes on, on any um, any really important stuff that they want to do. Um, and it, uh, they're, they're, they've moved beyond rules to putting people on particular committees. Uh, if you were a person who was about to be a subcommittee chairman, for example, and Kevin McCarthy is cutting a deal with one of these folks and saying, I'm sorry, this person is now going to be the subcommittee chair instead of you. Yeah, that's going to cause uh, a bit of a problem. So he's got to be really careful how close he gets over that line. I think at the end of the day, I've never really seen the, the sort of mainstream moderate folks stand up uh, and, and, and be the ones who, who vote something down. So I imagine they'll come along and Kevin McCarthy will bring them along because they'll just want to end this. But I just want to uh, stress that Kevin McCarthy is getting really far out there on the kinds of things that he's offering. And it could make the speakership very, very difficult to operate, whether it's him or somebody else. I think the word could is very generous of you, Brendan. It is always good to see you. Brendan Buck, advisor to two former Republican speakers of the House, John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Oh, those old days. Thank you for your time tonight, Brandon. Great to see you. Yeah, weren't they fun? Thank you. <laughs> Still ahead tonight, if you are wondering why, after 11 failed attempts to secure the votes needed to become the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy is still ready to go at it again. Join the club. NBC's Ali Vitale will join me to discuss the latest on a potential deal that Team Kevin is working on to earn the votes. But next... Seemingly out of nowhere, some Republicans decided they cared about nominating one of their own to be the first black speaker of the House. Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar joins me next to discuss the reason why. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. On Tuesday, Florida Republican Byron Donalds got one vote. One for Speaker of the House of Representatives. On Wednesday, he was officially nominated for that job. Here we are, and for the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House. We do not seek to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. There's an important reason for nominating Byron. And that is, this country needs a change. This country needs a change, he said. 
And rather than picking the only member of Congress who kept all the members of his caucus in line and earned the most votes for speaker 11 times now, Hakeem Jeffries, who also happens to be black, Congressman Chip Roy decided, hey, our party can kind of look diverse, too. We we do have four black members of our caucus, after all, and we can pick one of them. After that rousing speech by Chip Roy, Donald's earned 20 Republican votes during each round of voting yesterday. Today, he held on to at least 13 votes for him and against Kevin McCarthy, who, despite spending more than a decade in party leadership, has proven incapable of making the math work. Donald's, on the other hand, who about 20 years ago pleaded guilty to a felony bribery charge, has just completed his first term in Congress. And until they pick a speaker, he won't be sworn in for his second term. During that first term, Donald's never served in leadership. In fact, he ran against New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik for Republican conference chair and lost. His colleagues did not pick him. But they picked him to do this, to be the new non-white face of their opposition to would-be Speaker McCarthy. And that choice has not gone unnoticed. Congressman Cory Bush of Missouri put it this way, quote, for what it's worth, Byron Donald's is not a historic candidate for Speaker. He is a prop. Despite being black, he supports a policy agenda intent on upholding and perpetuating white supremacy. His name being in the mix is not progress. It's pathetic. Today, Republicans swore up and down that Congresswoman Bush was wrong. Yesterday, we could have elected the first black speaker of the United States House of Representatives last night. I sat within feet of Mr. Donald's as the tweet of another member-elect appeared on the screen. That member-elect wrote and sent out to America that Byron Donald's is a prop. He ain't no prop. And if he were a prop, he wouldn't be sitting where he's sitting. This is the tired, old, grotesquely racist rhetoric that we've seen far too long. That's the line. The party that has never in modern history put forward a black person as a potential leader in Congress that tends to vote against policies that would aid communities of colors. Members of that party are not making a mockery of the importance of diversifying congressional leadership. How could anyone possibly think that? Joining us now is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota. Congresswoman Omar, thank you for joining me on a day which must already be so exhausting for you, as it has been for anybody watching the proceedings here. What do you make of this new priority uh, on diversity coming from the GOP right now? I mean, I I don't know what to make of it. Um, In one of their speeches today, they talked about uh, the in one of the nominating speeches for McCarthy, there was a uh, talk of the doubling of the number of black representation, which is now at four um, on their side. And they were celebrating that and really, you know, very excited about that, which we should all be excited for them for. Uh, but we have 58 members on our side um, that represent that diversity of, of America. And I, I really do think that this uh, eagerness of them to show that they have um, developed interest in having diversity in representation uh, isn't really playing that well with the American public. Do you think the virtue signaling is at all to distract from the absolute mockery they're making of representative government? 
Of course, of course. I mean, there's no other way to make uh, sense of it. Uh, you know, I, I, I think Donald's um, is is a great guy. Um, they 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 had said some really amazing things about him, and I think that it's admirable for them um, to be able to to do that uh, for their colleague. But this is someone who just um, got reelected to their second term. Um, obviously someone who hasn't had the opportunity to fully figure out how Congress works. Uh, and we know that, uh, that someone like that isn't really prepared to, to be speaker. Uh, and even today, some of them started to, uh, nominate other people and abandon, uh, their interest in having him as, as their speaker. And so these, this sort of shenanigans, uh, really is a continued, uh, distraction, um, of the, the chaos that their conference is going through uh, and the American public uh, fully saying, you know, we made a mistake in sending these people um, to represent us in, in Congress, to have this majority that they don't even know how to handle. It's been three days. They haven't been able to organize the House. We don't have a speaker. None of us have been sworn in. All of us are member elect. We don't even know if our staff and ourselves will be paid. We can't take um, cases of our constituents. We have to ask the senators to be able to take care of our constituents. I mean, this is chaos beyond chaos. And McCarthy seems to enjoy the historic humiliation um, that is um, taking place. And, you know, as much as many people would like to rejoice, a lot of us are saddened and disappointed because we realize that tomorrow is the second anniversary of January mm. 6th. We remember the insurrection. We remember that the House was organized. We were ready. Democrats were ready. We'd already elected a speaker. We were ready to defend the Constitution. We were ready to defend our democracy. Imagine if this was to happen under Republican control. Tomorrow, when we walk in on the anniversary of January 6th, we will have no house organized. These, this is going to be the first time in over 100 years where we clearly cannot defend our democracy and our constitution. We don't have the house in order and the Republicans don't seem to be any closer in electing uh, a speaker. We've taken 11 votes so far. All votes have failed. Their leader has gotten less votes than the minority leader. Um, and it is just a, a, a shameful uh, sight to see, not just for Americans, but people across the world that expect us to have, you know, have figured this out being one of the oldest democracies in the world. I, I, I in addition to the chaos, it also reflects a certain sense of entitlement, do you think? I mean, Nancy Pelosi gave voice to this earlier. She said, you can just imagine what it would be like if a woman were holding up the opening of Congress, the swearing in of members, the enabling of staff to be hired to do the people's work. Can you just imagine for a person of color? I mean, you see these pictures of Congress people and their families, their babies, waiting around for them to be sworn in, the national security meetings that can't be held, the P as you point out, the people who aren't getting paid, people who can't access their congressionally provided health care. Uh, do you think this reflects a certain sort of mentality about what can be allowed if you are Kevin McCarthy or someone like him? 
Yeah, I mean, there there is a level of of arrogance, you know. I I would assume uh, that anyone else, after maybe even the second or third uh, failed attempt, uh, that their conference or their caucus would pull them aside and say, "You should withdraw. Here's someone else who's ready." And I think that that this is telling in two ways, right? One, that they're willing to allow this historic humiliation. Uh, to continue and that he's willing um, to to continue himself. And two, the fact that they don't have someone else, as he has said, to step into this role. I mean, you have a, a, a conference of 222 members. They don't have anyone else that they can coalesce around to be their leader. I mean, what... What kind of um, leadership have have they to show to the American people? Uh, and and you know, I I think it's also really important to remember. And I think you were just talking about this in the previous segment. There's a lot of concessions that have been made. Many of the members that are the holdouts have said he's given us everything we've asked for. We're still not going to vote for him. And so I'm wondering, right, does this man want us to be subjected to months to a year of not being sworn in, of the House not being organized? Is he going to sit through, you know, 33 votes <laughs> um, and go back to, you know, 1859? That was the last oh, time that happened. Oh, no. He's going to sit through, right, 133 votes, which is 1855 that has happened. And again, also, you know, what does it say about you when the objection yeah. to your leadership is similar in history to the objection in leadership that people had pre-Civil Civil War, War, right? Objections yes. that people were making because they couldn't agree on slavery. Yes. That is the level of objection this man has been subjected to. And he still hasn't woken up to that. He still wants to walk around with a smile. <laughs> we know that can't be real. Yes. Um, and and it, is, it is that, right? It is... It is sad because he wants to make it about himself and about earning this leadership that that he so desperately wants. But at some point, it has to become bigger than you. It has to become about the American people. Yes. It has to become about the work that has to get done. It has to be about legislating. It has yeah. to be um, about being effective on, on behalf of the people well. who put their trust in us and who sent us to Washington to represent them. Let it please not take 33 days or months. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good luck for the rest of this week and beyond. Send us prayers. <laughs> Coming up, after 11 failed rounds of voting for Speaker, the House has adjourned until noon tomorrow. But will tomorrow be any different? We'll talk to NBC's Ali Vitale live from the Capitol. Coming up next. Tonight, we have some new reporting from NBC about that potential deal reached between McCarthy allies and the group that is opposing his speakership. But tomorrow, several members are expected to leave Washington at a time when every single vote counts. For more on that, joining us now is NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale. Ali, what can you tell us about the brokering that's going on behind closed doors? 
Alex, we'll see what we actually see tomorrow, about 15 hours from now when they're back on the floor. But it sounds like they're closer to a deal than they've been. And if you watch the body language and the mood of the people who are leaving this meeting, chief among them, Kevin McCarthy, he does seem more relieved tonight than he's been at any point over the course of the last week. That's because as these members were huddling behind closed doors for hours, our understanding from one member in the meeting is that they feel like they've finally broken through with maybe 14 or 15 members. That could be enough to get McCarthy, if not over the finish line, but at least to show that he's made some progress. And frankly, Alex, at this point, that's really what they need to show. 14 or 15, Allie, still leaves, am I doing my math wrong? Six yeah. or seven that nope, could be no's. Not. Yeah, well, it still leaves five, four or five that could be no's, but they can be no's. They can be presence. That's an option if they have the 15 or potentially 16 people that they need to actually get him over the finish line. So at this point, any yes, he'll take. And we'll see where the numbers land tomorrow. <laughs> That's definitely true here. Yes. <laughs> Ali Vitali. He's taking yes for an answer. Burning the midnight <laughs> oil, my friend. We will wait to hear more from you. NBC Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitali. Thanks as always, Ali. That's it for us tonight.